0: The month of May is a crazy time, isn't it? We have banquets and concerts, end of year testing, our spring sports are coming to an end, and graduations. I mean, tonight here at Radius Lexington, we are gonna celebrate our graduating seniors. We're gonna give them a meal and pray over them and challenge them and say, way to go for the last 12 years, right? Colleges are doing graduations, and in just a few short weeks, they'll walk across the stage. And for us, it's less about really you know, the last 12 years, even though that's an accomplishment and should be celebrated. For us, it's more about this pivotal moment. Like this is a milestone in their lives. Big decisions need to be made. Big moments are gonna occur. And they they need to decide, am I going into the workplace? Am I joining the military? These graduates need to determine colleges they're going to attend or trade schools they might wanna go to. All of these are big and they're not just big decisions because of rivalries or how good the football teams are or, or what branch of the military you may go into. They're big because they alter the course of life. I mean, these kind of things are some of those big decisions that, that alter the course of our lives. I mean, for me, when I was 18 years old and I had to make a decision to go to Hardin-Simmons University, a small Baptist school in Abilene, Texas, to major in Bible, or was I gonna go to the University of Texas A&M where all my family went and I was gonna major in business? Either way, I was still gonna go into ministry. I just was gonna attack it from a a different standpoint. One, to get more Bible since I was gonna be preaching it all the time. The other, to get a business background because I thought that might be helpful as we lead churches. I decided to go to Hardin-Simmons and thankful I did. But I'm not thankful so much because of all of the Bible classes that I took and the ministry experiences gained. And those are valuable. The main reason why it was so important for me, that decision, that moment to go to Hardin-Simmons is because I met Terry Hogan, my wife, the best thing to happen to me since Jesus Christ. I mean, it's, it's life altering. I'm not sure I would have met her if I'd have gone to Texas A&M. I don't know if our paths would have crossed. That's how big this moment was for me. And I I think these kind of moments stand before our seniors and and maybe some of our college graduates and maybe some of you are, looking at that kind of a decision, that kind of moment that would alter the rest of your life forever. If we're honest, we probably only have five to 10 of those in a lifetime. I mean that they are a fork in the road. Change everything. And maybe not just change things for us, but change things for others. Today, we continue in our resilience series as we talk about Esther and Esther comes across one of those moments. This is a a fork in the road. It is going to change history for her and for others. And what's she gonna do? How is she gonna rise to the occasion? If you remember last week, we met Esther at the tail end of the Babylonian exile. Remember the, the nation of Israel hadn't obeyed God. And so he told him, if you don't obey, I'm gonna send you 70 years into exile in this foreign land. That 70 years is up. And the, the nation of Israel has been allowed to go home except Esther and her cousin Mordecai, they're staying in Persia. We were also introduced to the the Persian king, Asherus, or maybe your translation says Xerxes. Xerxes is just the Greek name for Asherus. Either way, same guy. We learned in Esther chapter one that he got mad at his wife and he banished her from being the queen and from his presence. After four years of going to battle, he comes home and he's ready to find a new bride, a new queen, a new wife, and he has this Miss Persia beauty contest. That's where we meet Esther, who's an orphan being raised by her cousin Mordecai. She's swept up into the king's harem along with hundreds of other young girls, and she ends up winning the favor of the king. She's now Queen Esther at the end of chapter two. And we're gonna see her in some of her queenly moments, if you will, where she'll have to make some decisions. She's gonna have to wrestle with some moments. Let's take a look at the first one that we have recorded of her as, as queen. It it happens in chapter two, verse 21. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two eunuchs who guarded the king's entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Asherus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Now we're gonna come back to this event a couple of times as we go through the book of Esther. What I find amazing here is that Mordecai is is clearly concerned about his cousin Esther. We see him kind of drifting by these gates often and he overhears this assassination plot. He gets word to Esther to say, hey, you need to warn King Asheris that they plan to kill him. This plot is avoided. The, The assassination is foiled and as a result, the king lives. That is Esther's first shot at it. And when you look at it, it's it's not that big of a moment, but it's a moment. And I think it begins to set the stage for us that what's gonna happen in in chapter three and chapter four. This is what I know about moments. Moments are made of challenges, decisions. These moments are made where we have to rise to an occasion and do something. I would say this, the challenges you are willing to face will rise in proportion to the character you're willing to develop. So the challenges that I'm willing to face, the challenges and decisions that I'm willing to come up against and and face head on, they're gonna be in direct proportion to the character that I'm willing to develop because character isn't forged in good times. Character is forged in hard times, in heat, in, in difficult circumstances. Now, as you read this first one, this isn't a difficult circumstance. She's gonna tell her husband, the king, that there's an assassination plot against him. That doesn't take a lot of character. It doesn't, it's not really that big of a moment, but she rises to it and she lets him know. Let's just keep this in mind for the rest of our time because these moments are gonna get bigger. Will her character rise to it? We'll keep reading. Chapter three, verse one. After all this took place, King Ashtoreth honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him but Mordecai would not bow down and pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? And when they warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Asherah's kingdom. We have Haman here being promoted, probably which is a sermon in and of itself. I mean, it was Mordecai who reported about the assassination attempt. If you were reading chapter three, verse one, if anybody should be given a parade, if anyone should be told to bow down to, it would be Mordecai. But instead, Haman is promoted crazy. Life's not fair, right? There's all kinds of stuff we could talk about there. The king Asherah decides to tell everyone to bow down to Haman. The problem is, is that Mordecai doesn't. And, and there's all kinds of things that we could kind of associate with this, but we know he doesn't bow down because Mordecai finally reveals his ethnic identity. Up until this point, Mordecai has been hiding it. Matter of fact, Mordecai, that name in and of itself is a Babylonian name. Esther is a Babylonian name. Mordecai has been telling Esther twice before, don't tell them who you are. Don't tell them you're a Jew. But finally, Mordecai comes out and he says it. Why does he do this? Well, what's going on here? Why would... Mordecai not bow. There's a lot here, but I really don't think this is an issue of Mordecai now somehow not wanting to bow down to a to an official out of some religious duty. I don't think that's the case. I don't think Mordecai has now found some new religious fervor that he didn't have in chapter two when they were going to come and take his cousin for her to be in the the concubine of the king, he sure didn't stand up when she was gonna be married to a Gentile king. So I don't think this is religious fervor here. If you'll remember in chapter two, verse five, Mordecai is introduced as the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. We know this is highly related to Saul, the very first king of Israel. So I think the author is letting us know that Mordecai is the descendant of Saul. In chapter 3, verse 1, we see that Haman is a descendant of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. Now, those of us who would know our Old Testament, specifically these first century Jews, these second temple Jews, they would know that there was something going on with Israel, the Jews, and the Amalekites and Agag. They hated each other. I don't have time to get into this, but those of you who would like some reading this week, check out Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, as Israel is making its way to Sinai, the Amalekites show up and they go to battle with them, trying to prevent them to go further. This is the story where Moses' arms have to be held up and when they drift, Israel starts to lose the battle and when they're held up, they begin to win. They're battling the Amalekites. And then we know in 1 Samuel 15, another crazy story where Saul defeats the Amalekites and he's supposed to wipe them all out, including their king, Agag. He doesn't do it. There's animosity between them. And that's what we have here. We have animosity between the descendants of Saul and the Amalekites. I really don't think this is Religious fervor as this is Hatfield's and McCoys. This is this is North versus South. This is a hatred of each other. Mordecai's not gonna bow to Haman. Haman's not gonna handle it. And when he finds out he's a Jew, this arch rival from centuries ago, he decides it's now his turn to wipe them out. When I think about this, I see two guys just in a in a spitting match in the locker room full of ego and pride. Let me tell you about moments for a moment. Moments are not made about ourselves. They're they're, they're made for a higher purpose. They're they're made giving ourselves away, not protecting our rights, not, not protecting ourselves. And for Haman here to to protect his glory and for Mordecai to to wanna stand up for some ancestry, is that really what this moment should be made of? Is that really what Haman wants to go after? Is that that really how he wants his name to be solidified? Is that how Mordecai wants to be known? I I just think about this world. It's, It's all about ourselves, isn't it? I mean, Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says that that none of us should should look out for our own interests, but look to the interest of others. That we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than ourselves. Verse five says, you you should have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. I just see selfish ambition and vain conceit. Kind of reminds me when we started running out of toilet paper and people would buy two-year-worth supply at Walmart, not caring about anyone else. Or now that gas is on the, uh, on, the, on the rare side of it, now we just go in every gas can we got at the house, we filled it up, uh, not caring about anyone else. Don't get me started on masks or anything else. We want to fight for our rights. Great moments aren't made on ourselves. They're for a higher purpose. They're about giving ourselves away. So we keep moving on. It says in verse seven and nine, in the first months, the month of Nisan, King Asherah's 12th month per, that is the lot was cast before Haman for each day and each month. And it fell on the 12th month, the month of Adder. Then Haman informed King Ashforus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom. Yet living in isolation, their laws are different from everyone else's and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let it be ordered, uh, let an order be drawn up authorizing the destruction, and I will pay 375 tons of silver to the accountants for the deposit of the royal treasury. Haman comes up with a plan. He says, I'm going to pay to have this done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of silver. We're not sure the exact amount, but it's a ton. He probably got it, probably would have got the money from the Jews that he killed anyway. He looks at King Aspirus and says, hey, here's the deal. You got a group of people here. They're they're spread all around. They 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 got weird customs and they don't obey your laws. What what Haman just did is manipulation. He told the truth. Yes, you have them living in your province. He told a half truth in that their laws are different from everyone else's. A lot of them were, but not all of them are. And then he says they don't obey the king's decree. Well, that's that's interesting because they have been obeying. You just have one guy who chose not to obey this one. And that's called a lie. It's called manipulation, right? This is how we know when we're trying to make a moment about ourselves is when we're lying and manipulating, abusing our influence and authority. So what's King Asherah's gonna do? He's gonna take the money. He's gonna take the money. He's gonna take this vague, you know, critique, he's gonna take this, this this vague accusation and he is going to allow Haman to kill the Jews in Persia. We're not sure what the number is. I'm sure it's a lot of them and now Haman has been set loose to do it. And how are Mordecai and Queen Esther gonna respond? Chapter four, verse one tells us the story. It says, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, He tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly. He only went as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There he is obeying the laws, which he was just told he doesn't obey. Ironic, isn't it? Verse three there was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every providence where the king's command and edict came and they fasted, wept, lamented and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. So the queen hears that the Jews are in sackcloth and ashes. They're wearing their black and they're mourning. Why? Because they just got the date that Haman can execute the kill order, the order to exterminate them. And so they begin to fast and weep and to, and to uh, mourn publicly. And Esther wants to know why. And so she sends someone down there to get the scoop. Verse 4 says she sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so he could take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned hathach one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So hathach went to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction. So Hathak might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, plead with him personally for her people. Hathic came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. As we look at this, we we see Mordecai is, is devastated. He sends everything he needs to Esther. Just in case she won't believe it, he sent the money that was gonna be paid. He sent the exact decree, the order as it was written to Esther. And he said, hey man, you've got to explain this to her. And then Mordecai says, you need to go to the king. You need to plead for your people. That's what he says. Isn't that interesting? Because up until this point, Mordecai has been saying, don't tell anybody who you are. Don't tell them you're a Jew. Don't tell them where you're from. And now Mordecai is saying, we need you to go and say, these are your people. You need to plead for them. This is what I know about moments. Moments take us from the invisible to the visible. Like if we really wanna seize a a big moment, if we really wanna capitalize on something, rarely do they allow us to stay in anonymity rarely do they allow us to just kind of drift in the background. They cause us to take a stand. They declare us, they demand us to declare our loyalty and our allegiance. And here, Mordecai says, you're going to have to come clean. You're going to have to tell the king, you're a Jew. These are your people, and you're going to have to beg on their behalf. And it's one thing to kind of go along with some things and and maybe not do them yourselves, it's another thing to take a stand, to make the most of the moment. Will she do it? Or will she remain invisible, hiding her identity Verse 10, it says, Esther spoke with Hathak and commanded him "'to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials "'and the people of the royal provinces know "'that one law applies to every man and woman "'who approaches the king in the inner courtyard "'and who has, who has not been summoned, the death penalty. "'Only if the king extends the gold scepter "'will that person live. "'I have not been summoned to appear before the king "'for the last 30 days.'" Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. So they're communicating to each other via this servant. And once the servant comes and says, you gotta go to the king and you have to plead for your people and you gotta let them know you're a Jew. Esther says, hey, here's the deal. I can't do that because I don't just get to waltz in. No one gets to waltz in. Matter of fact, it's a law that if I just waltz in, unsummoned, I could die. That's interesting because Daniel had to do that And Joseph had to do that. There are times in our lives where we have to do something difficult, right? And here we have her saying, I don't know if I can. Not only that, she says, I haven't been summoned before the king in 30 days. It's been a month. Can you imagine being married to a man and not being allowed in his presence for 30 days? I don't know if his love grew cold. If the numbers are correct of all the girls that they gathered in chapter two, if that number's correct, the king would have had a different girl to join him in his bedroom every night for nearly four years. Esther would just be every once in a while. Crazy to think, isn't it? So she looks and says, I, I can't. Here's what I know about moments. Moments rarely come at convenient times. They rarely come when when things are easy. Like, wouldn't it be nice if the passage said, hey, that's a great idea, Mordecai. I just found out the king summoned me tonight. Like that would work out well, but that's not the way great moments always work. Sometimes they do, but big moments don't always come like that. They come in inopportune times, inconvenient times, times where, where we're busy doing something else or we don't think the time is yet right and here it is like, The time is now. Sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes it's an interruption. And so Esther's gonna declare this to Mordecai, verse 13. Here's Mordecai's response. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. Did you hear that? I'm gonna read that again. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Esther. I don't know if, if when you come to these words, these are probably the most famous verses from the book especially the part I'm fixing to read next. I don't know about you, but th- this reads like a threat almost. Like don't, you, you think the king's palace is gonna save you? You think your household is gonna stand? You think your father's line is gonna stand? This will happen another way. I mean, it's, this is, this is hard. And I know sometimes we can read it like, oh, he's talking about God. I, maybe, maybe not. These are harsh words. He then goes on and says, who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He says, the palace won't save you. This palace won't save you. This is, this is what's crazy about moments. Sometimes they're obscured by the blessings in our lives. I know it's hard to imagine all that has happened to Esther right now, but at the end of the day, she's the queen. She's attended to by servants. She's living in the palace. She's eating royal food, attending great parties. And sometimes all of that, and we would call that a blessing, even though it's not how she wanted to be there. It's probably not how she drew it up. It's probably not the way she dreamed her life would be, but, it's not too bad right now, right? Sometimes these blessings obscure the moment. Sometimes it's our money, sometimes it's our home, sometimes it's our cars, sometimes it's our children, sometimes it's our job. They distract us. They keep us from seeing something great to be done. They keep us preoccupied from delving into a moment where something fantastic could happen. Mordecai says, don't let the palace fool you. It's not gonna save you. And not only does moments sometimes are they obscured, but sometimes we underestimate the value of our words and our deeds. We underestimate what we can do in the moment. I mean, think about it. I mean, she's just a young girl. She's shoved into a room with possibly a thousand other young girls from the provinces. They don't know each other and they're all gonna be pampered for a year just to be paraded into the king's bedroom for a night. Never to be allowed out, never to to have the life they wanted. Some of them never to marry. Most of them never to have children. Just a part of a harem or a concubine. If anyone Esther got out, good, because she's the queen. My guess is this isn't how she dreamed it up. And it'd be really easy to say, I don't have any value here. I I can't do anything. I can't say anything. I I don't have anything to offer. Don't ever underestimate your words and deeds. Even if you're in a situation or you have a history that if you could go back and rewrite it, you would. Just a couple of stories, I I got a privilege of leading eighth grade boys in my home on Sunday nights. And there was a guy here in our church. He moved away at at the semester break in December. And he would speak to our students and he was very candid about a, a porn addiction he had in high school and college. I remember one night sitting across the table with these eighth grade boys and them bringing his name up and saying, wow, he was so honest with us and telling us that he didn't want us to go down the same path he did. You see, that guy knew that even though he wishes he could rewrite his story and not make some of those decisions to fall into that addictive, sinful behavior, he knows that, man, he didn't underestimate the value of looking at eighth grade boys and saying, you don't wanna do what I did. Or, or, or for people who have gone through marriage difficulty, like a marriage, a divorce, and a remarriage, instead of being embarrassed about that, you you use that as an opportunity to give hope to a couple that's in the ditch. Or, or maybe maybe there's pain in your life, loss. Don't ever underestimate the power of your word and deed. And here's Esther in a spot that that's not what she wanted. It's not how she drew it up. Don't underestimate how powerful this is, how powerful the moment can be. Finish up last few verses. Says Esther sent his reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews. who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days. Day or night, I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had ordered him. It's one of those moments where you look at her and say, that a girl. Way to rise up and and to say, hey, we're gonna fast here and we're gonna do it for three days. And at the end of three days, I am gonna go into the king and I need all the Jews to join me. And I don't think this fasting is like, hey, let me pray about it like we do sometimes. No, I think this is, we are gonna fast and we are gonna commemorate ourselves to this moment. We are gonna dedicate ourselves to this moment and I want you to dedicate it with me. And when I think about moments like this, I think about the fact that a lot of times the odds are stacked against us. But the odds are stacked against us so that God can show his power. I mean, isn't that true all through Scripture. The odds are stacked against David and and Joseph and Moses and Gideon and the list goes on. The odds are stacked against them. The odds were stacked against 11 guys who followed Jesus for three years. And this thing became a massive movement after his resurrection. It shows his power. This is gonna be that time where they say it, I'm going to go to the king, and if I perish, I perish, and if this thing goes forward, it goes forward. Why? Because it's had to be more than me. I wonder if, remember the tail end of chapter Two, going to tell the king that there was this assassination plot against him? I didn't take a whole lot of character. Not that big of a challenge. And I ask, would her character rise to this one? She's a little hesitant. Had some questions, a little bit of fear, maybe a lot of fear. but now we see her character is rising to it. Her character is rising to this moment and this challenge, even though the odds are stacked against her. Finally, i say this about moments. Moments are not always open doors and open windows. Sometimes moments are walls to climb over. We live in this this little cliche Christian world. Sometimes it says, hey, you just walk through the doors that God opens. And that's great when he opens a door. Sometimes you have a wall to climb over. You have a ditch to get in. You have barbed wire to army crawl under. I mean, sometimes the moment is is hard and we got to step up. Matter of fact, great moments are like that, aren't they? When there's a wall to go against, when there's a wall to climb over, that's what makes our greatest heroes heroes. That's why we're going to love the way this story ends. Because here's a young lady that's gonna she's gonna climb over the wall. My question for you is: Do you got a wall to climb over? Are you just waiting for nice, clean, open doors? For some of us, it may be that our marriages are in a ditch and we just, we gotta get in and climb over the wall and get to work. For others of us, it's a a sin issue and we gotta rise to the moment and say, man, my life is gonna be changed forever because I'm gonna confront this and you're gonna climb the wall. For some of us, it's to, to love a neighbor that doesn't talk to us. For others, it's to offer forgiveness for someone that's wronged us. For, for whatever it is, there are walls in front of some of us and we need to climb them. Seize the moment. Seize the moment. As I try to close, I, I, I guess I would say this, that there are hundreds of moments throughout our days that, aren't radically going to shift our lives. They're not radically gonna alter our lives. But they're moments nonetheless. Moments where we try to live in obedience. Moments that are seemingly just mundane, like how we treat our wife and kids, how we act at work. It's moments. I would say those moments are just as profound, just as important. Because you never know how that moment may be mundane to you but be incredibly significant for someone else. So I'll ask you a question as I close. What if I told you that in the near future, there was a moment ahead that would radically alter your life or someone else's? How would you live? Would you have your head up looking for it? Maybe that's what God wants from us. Let me pray. Lord, there's not a a doubt in my mind that our lives are full of these moments. Some of them mundane, some of them monotonous, some of them boring, some of them we never give a second thought to. We don't give a second thought to the word we say or the, the, the deed that we do. We just, we just do them. We're on autopilot. And Lord, I, I pray for us that we could get our heads up and we could begin to see that, that we don't wanna live for ourselves. We wanna live for something bigger and higher. We wanna be on the lookout for moments that may not change our lives, but could sure change someone else's. So Lord, I pray first of all that, that our eyes would be up. The second thing I pray is that we would have character to rise to these, these difficult challenges, these difficult decisions that we would be willing to develop and forge a character that would, that would be able to climb over difficult challenges, difficult moments. And then finally, I I pray for us as there are many of us who have walls in front of us. And and for many of us, we're hoping that a door opens or that we can walk around the side or maybe even just a window slides. But Lord, at the end of the day, we might just have to climb over it and get dirty. And I pray for the courage and the strength to do it. I pray for the discipline and the character to make that happen. I pray for people to come alongside of us and to cheer us on. Lord, I pray that we would um, not miss moments, great moments to change our lives or someone else's lives for the sake of you and your glory. I'm excited to see how that's gonna happen as a result of this moment in this book as we finish this story in the next couple of weeks. Lord, we love you. We pray all of this in your son's name, amen.